I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the meditation teacher and sound therapist, Sarah Oster. Sarah is the author of the book, Sound Bath, Meditate, Heal, and Connect Through Listening. She's held mass meditations at places including the Museum of Modern Art, Lincoln Center, and Madison Square Garden. A leading meditation expert who has helped propel and make sound therapy more mainstream over the past decade, Sarah has a perspective we should certainly be hearing more from in these tumultuous times. Before we jump into it, I'd just like to mention that we'll be including a brief sound bath performed by Sarah at the end of the episode, so stick around. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So we're speaking to you amidst a lot of ongoing confusion, chaos, an upcoming election. How should we be thinking about this current moment from your perspective? That's a, that's a big place to start. I think the best thing that we can do is to take it one day at a time, is what I'm, I'm learning for myself. Mm. And COVID obviously has had a large impact on all of us in big ways and, and in small. In relationship to sound and noise, how have you been thinking about this pandemic? And <laughs> that's ironic. <laughs> and, and how do you think it's shifting our collective response to sound generally? There's, you know, certainly less noise pollution, less traffic <laughs> noise. And fewer planes flying around, not so many concerts. Well, I think there is a strong invitation to become more aware of the sounds that are most immediately in our environment. Mm -hmm. As you just heard, I'm in New York City. I actually live right across the street from a firehouse. And for the last six years, I've been invited to engage with a, a different kind of relationship to sirens. <laughs> <laughs> I guess before we go too deep into it, it's, it's sort of this idea of like the sound bath in general, which is central to your practice. Could you tell us what exactly a sound bath is? And also, could you elaborate on this notion of bathing in sound? even if that means uh, fire sirens? Yeah, well, the word bath really implies to be immersed in. Mm. And so a sound bath is a deeply immersive listening experience, primarily where sound is used intentionally to invite therapeutic and restorative effects. Mm. And I use those words pretty intentionally versus words like blissed out, <laughs> phrases like that, uh, because, because therapy is not always soothing, but it's really the intentionality uh, with which we approach sound and the act of listening that can invite natural healing in the body and the mind. Mm. And sound baths are typically in-person experiences or gatherings. How has accommodating for digital remote experiences been working for you? And how important is the collective experience of a sound bath? It's interesting because a couple, 
couple of years ago, I may have said that sound baths can truly only be experienced in person until many requests from participants were that they wanted to try and figure out ways to recreate these types of experiences at home. And you might laugh at this, but I would get requests for CDs most often, Hmm. just to give you an idea of the, the kind of people who are coming to sound baths five or six years ago. And so that inspired me to start to create recordings Mm. And I began to create live recordings in churches primarily to capture the air and space and the acoustics Mm. of the environment to try and reproduce something as close to the live experience as possible. So that would be different kinds of miking and mapping the sound to offer a, a very... 360 immersive recording. Uh, And so I started doing that a few years ago and it wasn't until March 14th that I offered my very first virtual sound bath. And I wasn't really convinced at the time that there would be as powerful of a response or reaction and I was proved wrong Mm. by the amount of people who are tuning in all across the world, across different different time zones, people who had been following my work for years who were never able to attend an experience in person. And so that really opened up a new way of thinking about the live experience for me. Mm. It's interesting because as sound baths have kind of gained more popularity, technology has also advanced. I mean, are you thinking about binaural sound and how you create this experience of of space, which is what you kind of hold for people when you when you create a sound bath. Yeah, I'm I'm always thinking about different ways to to explore the types of sounds that I'm introducing and different ways of recording and and capturing space and capturing sound. I don't consider myself to be a very technical person. So a lot of it is through intuition and and listening and experimentation. Mm. So I'm not afraid to to try a new setup, try a new microphone, and get feedback from from different people. How did you come to practice sound therapy? I mean, how where did this all start? It's a relatively new field, it feels like. And yet centuries old. Yeah. I think that the way that it's being presented now has a different kind of language around it, a different way of of communicating a concept that has been around for thousands of years. The fact that people connect to sound and share sound experiences as a way to commune, as a way to self-soothe, as a way to express themselves that concept has been around, you know, as long as humans have been around. Sure. And I think now more more than ever there's a there's a longing to get back to that feeling of connection, both both internally to have a greater understanding of self and and externally to have a, a, a deeper, stronger connection with other people. Mm. I have a background as a musician and an artist, and I 
had a pretty traumatic accident almost 20 years ago now. Mm. And that sort of set me on, on a new course to, to understand how to, how to heal my body, how to walk again, how to get out of chronic pain, mm. but also how to recover from the, from the trauma of the accident. And so I started to work with meditation and yoga and sounds for my own self-healing journey. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. So did you find that the physical trauma was just the kind of beginning to understand? I mean, the physical thing is the immediate, but you then went deeper. Yeah, I mean, and I would say this to my students and clients, pain is the greatest teacher sometimes. And I think sometimes for a lot of us, it takes physical pain to help to redirect a particular path or a bad habit or, you know, maybe you're going the wrong direction in life and uh, pain or an accident or even the emotional pain of, of loss can help to nudge us or smack us across the face to, to take a turn in a different direction. Do you think that experience, that personal physical trauma you had and, and the, the healing afterwards has somehow helped you to create a more empathic approach with your students? Do you think it's helped you become a better teacher? 100%. I, I think that it's impossible to, to think that there's one person who hasn't experienced struggle or trauma or, or loss. And the more you experience it yourself, the more you're able to empathize with somebody else's struggle, loss, and, and trauma. So I mm. often find that the greatest teachers or the greatest healers or the people who can connect in this way with the widest audience are, are people who have been, been through something themselves. Yeah. And now that we're sort of collectively going through something, I want to talk a bit about that. But before that, just earlier, you were talking about the, like the primordial sounds, like how long it's been used and how far back in history we go. So not only can we connect collectively experiencing it, but do you think that we, through sound baths, connect to a previous version of the species? Do you think that we're able to sort of time travel back? to a kind of core sound that we've been experiencing? Because that hasn't changed, right? A singing bowl is a singing bowl for all of time, right? I mean, there certainly have been advancements in the, in the tools that are being used to produce sounds. Like a crystal singing bowl is a more uh, modern invention mm. versus a, a metal Himalayan singing bowl, what a lot of people call Tibetan singing bowls, mm -hmm. uh, has been around for a bit longer. However, I think that our primal desire to connect through, through subtlety and through vibration has, has remained the same. But through technology and mm. screens and wires, it's almost like a, like a generation loss, like the technical term of a generation loss, mm. you know, where you make a recording of a recording of a recording or a photocopy of a photocopy. Mm. Yeah. So you're not experiencing the same when you're, when you're experiencing the recording, but 
Why do you think, I mean, we talked a bit about why it's gained in popularity over the past few years, but what have you seen over the past six months during the quarantine and lockdown in terms of the attention and the, the sort of notice that sound therapy has gotten? For me personally, I've been a lot busier <laughs> yeah. with, with work. There is more demand for anything that can assist with sleep and reducing anxiety and increasing mm. calm and relaxation. Additionally, I believe that sound baths offer an opportunity to, it's almost like traveling without moving. Mm. And since a lot of people have been lockdown and quarantine, most of us in your same four walls or eight walls or however many walls you have with the same people, it's an opportunity to just connect to another place in your mind. Something beyond. Yeah. Do you think of it as going in or going out? Both. Both at the same time. I think that it's the same. There is a vast universe that exists internally as vast as what exists outside of ourselves. It's just a, a microcosm of the external, mm. if that makes sense. So you can go deep inside and you can go far outside. We've also had this like general obsession. I mean, even the kids and slime with ASMR, you know, there's been this kind of huge attention on it. Do you think that it's generally reflective of just our knowledge of it, or is it a reaction to kind of the uh, weaponized speed and anxiety that's happening in our society right now? I think the, the trend and the explosion of ASMR is that, as I mentioned before, that, that longing to connect to subtlety and sensation. Mm. And the, the beauty that exists in the smallest details of life. So more figuratively than, than literally, oh, this like whispering makes me feel a chill of my spine. You know, it's just having an awareness and attention on something that's so subtle and seemingly insignificant that starts to expand our appreciation for life and the human experience. Mm. I wanted to mention slowing down and particularly in the context of sound baths. Do you think sound baths have anything to do with our, our species wide kind of need to slow down this sort of idea of like a reaction to the speed of what's happening around us, particularly in contemporary society with like media intake and, and just the bustle of things day to day? Yeah. I mean, and a question that I get asked a lot is, is more specific to, you know, how has this work shifted in the last six months? But what's really interesting to me is that I find myself revisiting teachings, things that I've said and attempted to impart on people for many years before this. Not, none of that has changed. Mm -hmm. Slow down, pause, get quiet, get really quiet, get all the way quiet, slow all the way down. And those are things that many people had to be forced to acknowledge and accept. And I think in many ways, as, as tragic and traumatic as this time is, 
it is a really beautiful invitation for people to begin to invite those concepts into their lives. Mm. What's your approach to creating trust with your sound bathers? And has it evolved? Has, has it shifted over time? I think what I realized early on is that my experience of sound is unique to me. And early on, I realized as I was having my own revelations through sound or epiphany moments that the craziest thing I could do is run through the streets and try to convince other people that they too could have the same mind-blowing moments that I had because it's so unique and individual to, to each person. And I'm not in the business of convincing anybody of anything. Mm. So that's, that's how I feel that I'm able to, to build trust with participants, with sound bathers, with listeners, with students, is that each person needs to come in their own time. And if there's any sort of force or coercion, there could be discomfort and then that's the association with the experience is being is being uncomfortable. So you might hear me say, whether it's in a recorded experience or a live experience, I'll say the word comfortable many, many times until it kind of sinks in that this is a real opportunity for you to just be with yourself. Nobody's forcing you to be here. You showed up on your own. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. Just take care of yourself shift your body, you know, those, those types of invitations really help to make people feel at ease. Mm. Yeah. So one of your tools is almost like being as open and abstract in your language as you can while still being specific enough that people can follow a sort of practice, but it's still vague enough that they can bring their own sort of emotional whatever. Does that sound right? That sounds pretty good to me, actually. <laughs> it sounds like a good formula. Yeah, each person has to bring their own whatever. Yeah. I like how you put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about some of the instruments and tools you use, like crystal bowls, tuning forks, you know, shruti box accordion. Mm-hmm. Is there improv involved in, is that central to how you work? And how do you choose what you play and when? So I draw a metaphor to that of a chef who has tools and knives and pans and things to cook with. And then you have the, the different ingredients, uh, the food and the seasoning and all those things. And so you have your knowledge of flavor and how different flavors complement each other or not. And you have the alchemy of, of heat and timing And, you know, all of those things are important. So it's not just about the knives and the pans. It's about all of those elements and and the understanding of the ingredients and how they they work together and understanding different people's palates Mm. and how they taste things. Yes, crystal bowls, tuning forks, pots, pans, (laughs) knives. Yes. I imagine that it's it's harder with a larger group, but when you're with a smaller group, do you find yourself responding to the energy in the room? Like how important is the listening on your end to the room and sort of accommodating for that? Or is there a conversation there? 
100%. There's a conversation that's happening in the room and even, even virtually when I'm facilitating experiences, although it's a little bit more abstract, a little bit more energetic versus really listening to what's happening in the room, mm. listening to the sounds that are being made by participants. But I'm also looking a lot at the shifting of bodies to kind of get a sense of what's going on with people in the where they are in a state of relaxation or not. So in that sense, it is, it is improvised to an extent. But you're playing a sort of almost like a raga. You're playing a, a predetermined song in a way and then adjusting it or you're sort of building it completely improvisationally? Building it almost completely improvisationally. Oh, wow. And knowing the, the tones and how they interact with each other and sort of creating an arc to the experience. Right. But it's different every time. Mm. And that's also why I encourage people to revisit the experience uh, again and again, because there's so much to explore. I wanted to ask about your book that came out last year, Sound Bath, and you also made an audio component of the project. I, I was curious uh, in the ways when, it must've been a question for you, you know, when you got the opportunity to make a book, why a book? How do you interpret sound visually? You know, what, what do you do with this experience? So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you approached it and, and how it came out. Yeah, it sounds like you were in the first meeting with the publisher. <laughs> how do you begin to write a book about sound where sound is not a component in the book? Yeah. As a listener, you know that the experience of a sound bath is mostly experiential. So how do you talk about it with words? And it was important to me to have a lot of imagery in the book. Mm. There's a painter, Noah Post, who's a very dear friend of mine who I've collaborated with over the years. And he does drawings and paintings while listening to my recordings. And so that's one example of a visual element in the book where there is a drawing at the opening of each chapter that's been drawn by Noah while listening to my recording. So it feels like a visual representation of the sound and a, a moment of pause in between the chapters, a, mm. a mental palette cleanser, if you will. And then how did the audio component play in with the book? How were you able to sort of create two different entry points to the information? Uh, well, there's... <laughs> As I caught myself about to say that, it was kind of funny. Well, there's sound in the audiobook, mm. but not only the sound of my voice, but also different strikes of bowls in between the chapters. And there's also a 10 minute sound bath recording embedded in the audiobook. Mm. So people are listening to the audiobook, they get an actual taste of a sound bath. You made the Rest and Digest sound bath for Audible earlier this year. In what ways do you think sound baths work as a means for facilitating sleep? I feel that sound baths can be an ushering in to sleep. A lot of us go from a very wide awake state in the day from being reactive and responsive on emails and calls to then right. Probably watching television to probably looking back at the phone to emails and social media to then knocking out into unconscious sleep if you're lucky. So there are 
very few moments that a lot of people are building into their day to access a, a liminal state, a restful state that's different from sleep. And so if you can have that transitional time before sleep, it can help you to sleep deeper and more soundly. Mm. And in general, the benefits you found of mindfulness and meditation increased focus and clarity, decreased anxiety. Can you talk about some of the benefits beyond that that you found that are sort of the unexpected things that after practicing for so long surprised you in the benefits of meditation? I think the number one for me, the best way that I can describe it is feeling like I have an ability to slow down time almost and, and pause before a reaction. Mm -hmm. And those are heightened reactions like anger or outburst or something like that, where something might set off a trigger. It no longer does mm. because I have the opportunity to question my response before I respond. That's my favorite uh, side effect of meditation. One thing connected to this that I was curious about is in your evolution and as someone who's practiced for so long and taught, have you been able to kind of separate the voices in a way? I'm not quite sure how to articulate but this, but this idea of the, the multitudes of selves and in that moment of pause, is it simply a pause or is it the ability to parse out, oh, that's anxiety talking or that's fear talking or that's one of the selves, but not the monolithic self. Sure. And that is the, I am not my thoughts, basically. But if you want to look at it as more of like a, a cartoon scenario of the, the angel and the devil and the different, the different selves, you can. But I think that it's mostly that I am not my thoughts. Mm. You've previously mentioned that you take issue with the word healer. So I'm curious, could you elaborate on why you don't like that term? It's not that I don't like the term. I love the term. I love the word. <laughs> I love the word heal. I love the word healer. I love the word healing. Mm -hmm. However, over the years, I have corrected people when they call me a sound healer because of what it implies to mm. most people, which is that I am someone greater than you that has a power over you to change something in you for you. Mm. Like the guru idea levitating on a, you know, I'm going to touch my hand to your forehead and you're healed <laughs> when that's not, I mean, that's not what healing is. And it, anybody who's been through pain, you know, understands that there's not a magic pill mm. and that it requires a constant willingness to, to show up and, and keep trying. And I wouldn't want to imply that I am greater than another person. A healer's role is to hold space for someone to heal themselves, to open the door, to hold their hands, to hold the space, to, to show the way, to sit side by side, not above mm -hmm. and below. And so until that stereotype can dissolve, 
then I, I won't call myself that. Mm-hmm. Much of your work is based in religious ceremonies and prayer, you know, and we're talking millennia and going back. A lot of it is, you know, has been done for spiritual reasons. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the spiritual element that sort of underlies the sound bath? I think people connect to spirit and spirituality in different ways. And I have always felt strongly about making these types of practices accessible to people. So stripping away any kind of language that might be alienating, et cetera, mm-hmm. <laughs> while honoring the, the, the lineage and traditions of, of where things came from. Mm. To finish, you know, it's very unclear when we're going to emerge from this current pandemic, but when we do, what gives you the most hope? What what are you looking forward to the most? Mm. Concerts, probably. Being, being, <laughs> seeing live music, uh, being with people, hugging, touching people, human touch. Yeah. That's probably the thing I'm, I'm looking forward to, but I think I am hopeful that we will uh, emerge differently from this. As I mentioned before, this has been an invitation, an opportunity to shift our perspective around who we are and our roles and purpose in the world and how we use each day to the fullest. And I hope that we maintain enough of that reverence for life. Mm. Sarah, thank you so much uh, for your time today. It was really nice to speak with you. Same. Thank you both. Take a comfortable seat or lay down. Allow your body a moment to relax and settle. Let your eyes close or gently look downward. bring your awareness to your breath. Invite a slow breath in through the nose and exhale gently through the mouth.
open your eyes, inviting in the light of your space, noting if anything has shifted in your body or your awareness. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.